This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 46 The Perrin Family Haunting Every horror story has its origin. Modern media and Hollywood tend to alter and construe these stories to make them more appealing or scary, regardless of the events that were used to influence them. When in actuality, the original story is even more horrifying and more eventful than it is perceived. This such story is one that went on to be one of the most compelling and intense hauntings of its kind. After gaining recognition by the New England Society for Psychic Research, a case was investigated into by Ed and Lorraine Warren. The story went on to influence one of the most authentic horror films in history, The Conjuring. This is the real story. When the Perrin family moved into their new home in Harrisville, Rhode Island, in 1971, they had no idea what they were in for. From day one, it was easy to see they were not alone. Over the course of the next ten years, they would experience something so impactful, it would shape their future and remain with them for the rest of their lives. When Roger and Carolyn Perrin found their new home in Rhode Island, they could not wait to move. However, with Christmas approaching, they decided to hold off till afterward to uproot their family. January quickly came, and it was time for the couple along with their five daughters to make the move. Despite the harsh conditions of a winter storm, the family committed and made the trip to their new home in Harrisville. When they arrived, Carolyn, the mother, and the youngest daughter, April, went ahead and through the kitchen entrance while everyone else helped unload. Andrea, the oldest daughter, was the first to be handed a box to deliver to the kitchen. She entered the house to the main entrance. As she went through the foyer and immediately turned right into the parlor, she was met by Mr. Kenyon, the previous resident, whom was still packing up items from the china cabinet. She stopped to talk to him for a few minutes before delivering the box to the kitchen, where Carolyn was still waiting for her. 
Before exiting the room, she turned and saw another oddly dressed man, whom she assumed was there with Mr. Kenyon. Hello, she said to the man. However, she was met with no response as the man appeared to be watching Mr. Kenyon's progress. She didn't think anything of it and headed to the kitchen. Who is the man here with Mr. Kenyon? She questioned her mother. Baffled by her questioning, she explained that no one had came with Mr. Kenyon that afternoon, and he was waiting on his son, whom would be there later that day, to finish helping him move. By that time, the other girls came in, each carrying boxes to deliver to their mother in the kitchen. Each daughter came in asking the same question. The mother, although confused, became concerned. When Nancy came into the room, the other girls asked her if she had seen the man with Mr. Kenyon. She hesitantly replied, I did, but he just disappeared. At this moment, the women in the house knew something about the place was different. When Mr. Kenyon's son arrived, they started packing up the van with the rest of his remaining items in the house. Roger was then pulled aside and asked by Mr. Kenyon to take a walk with him. During their walk, Roger was told to leave the lights on at night. Although taken aback by the statement, he quickly dismissed it and went about helping the man move the rest of his belongings. The family spent the remainder of the day and night settling in. The girls spent the good part of the following day looking for their cat, whom they found hiding under the furniture. The cat appeared skittish and would not respond when they called for it. Additionally, the family dog began to act strange as well. They would find it barking and growling at corners of the room or the doorways. They assumed this was caused by it being unfamiliar with the new surroundings. That night after the family had went to bed for the evening, Cindy was awakened by hearing a voice in the middle bedroom she shared with Christine. The voice seemed to echo and consume the room till it became louder and intensified to the point she could not take it. Cindy tried to muffle the voices by wrapping her pillow around her head, but they seemed to infiltrate her thoughts. They were inside her head. She burst into tears and mustered up the courage to race into Andrea's room. What is it? Are you okay? Andrea asked her as she pulled back the blankets to allow her younger sister into bed with her. Cindy stood there crying and explained that she had heard the voices. Concerned by this, Andrea asked where the voices came from, as she could not hear them. Cindy didn't understand why her sister could not hear the voices as they seemed to be louder than anything she had ever experienced. 
Cindy climbed into bed with her. Andrea spent the rest of the night comforting her younger sister as she cried herself to sleep. This became a nightly routine. However, as the days progressed, Andrea found herself opening her bed to her younger sisters. There were things in the house they experienced that at first scared them and didn't feel normal. As the months progressed, the children began to feel more at ease in the house. They would often claim to see apparitions of a woman with a broken neck. The woman welcomed the children and made them feel accepted. The youngest daughter, April, befriended a young boy whom appeared from her closet in the room she shared with Nancy. The boy called himself Oliver Richardson. They would often play together and it became normal for the children to know of his existence. He claimed to be a previous member of the house who was no longer of this world. Carolyn Perrin, the mother of the house, would often be cleaning and lay her broom down and leave the room. From another room in the house, she would hear the sound of sweeping and come back to find the broom on the opposite side of the room from where she had left it. Sometimes she would find piles of dust and dirt in places where she had previously cleaned. She often felt like something was toying with her and trying to get her to notice. As time continued to progress, the animals in the house still felt uneasy. It wasn't long before the family dog was found dead and the cat had ran away, only to never return. At this point, things took an opposite turn. The family would hear strange, scratching sounds throughout the house. Appliances and devices would turn themselves on, and landline phones would fly off the cradle and throw themselves back on when someone would enter the room. On numerous occasions, birds would fly into the windows as if attempting to end their own lives. Additionally, clocks would stop at approximately 3.07 a.m., every morning. The family also would see blue lights periodically traveling throughout their home. One night, Cindy, the second youngest daughter, watched the fridge door open and slam shut repeatedly as items were thrown from within it. The family would awake to hear things smashing through windows in the house. However, after investigating the scene, there were no broken windows to be found. The family endured the different occurrences on a near nightly and daily basis. After they had lived there for three years, the family would wake up to the scent of rotting flesh consuming the entire house. Each of the girls would take turns being ripped from their beds at approximately 5.15 a.m. each day. Sometimes they would be lightly pulled. Other times, they were completely removed from the bed and thrown out of it. One day while outside playing, 
Nancy heard a voice calling her to the well on the property. After this point, the girls had to travel throughout the house in packs. They could not even go to the bathroom alone, for fear of feeling an evil male presence watching them as they did so. The father continued to deny that there was ever anything in the house and dismissed the claims the daughters and wife would bring to his attention. It wasn't till one night Carolyn was sleeping on the sofa when she was awakened by a sharp, piercing feeling on her calf. She shot straight up and looked at her leg and found a pool of blood. She looked for any sharp objects nearby and even looked for any bees that may have been in the house, but found nothing. She immediately alerted her husband, and he persisted. There was some rational, logical explanation for what had happened. The mother, along with her five children, felt there was some evil presence there that did not like her being in the home. They felt as though it was a woman who had home previously been the woman of the house. She loved the children along with the husband, but felt threatened by the mother. Carolyn spent the following days looking into the history of the household trying to figure out what or who it was that did not want her there. She found that the estate was erected in the late 1600s. It was originally deeded to the Richardson family after being surveyed by John Smith, one of the original colonists. It was eventually sold to the Arnold family, after whom the estate was named. As Carolyn continued to dig into the history of the house, she found that Mrs. Arnold had hung herself on the property, along with other numerous deaths on the property as well. The family noticed a change in the mother as she continued diving deeper into the history. The woman started wearing clothing from an older time period and no longer acted like herself. They originally assumed it was because Carolyn was a natural historian and often committed herself to her hobbies. However, as time passed, they realized this was not the case. As time went on, Carolyn continued to become a completely different person and was no longer recognized by her husband nor her daughters as the mother they once knew. Eventually, the New England Society of Psychic Research was contacted. Shortly after, Ed and Lorraine Warren arrived at the house ready to conduct an investigation into the strange occurrences. The Warrens began their investigation into the old Arnold estate the night before Halloween in 1973. The family was very confused by the Warrens' interest in their story, as no one had contacted them regarding their situation. They stated someone had called a paranormal team from Rhode Island State College, claiming to be Carolyn Perrin. 
the man and his team had came and had an experience that could not be described. He then sought out and contacted the Warrens, requesting them to come to investigate the property. The Warrens spent the next year on the case. They would often come when the father, Roger, had left the house. They spent many hours and had many experiences within it. They eventually determined a seance was the best step to take to expose the demons that inhabited the property and ultimately were nearing possession of Carolyn Perrin. After instructing the children to go to bed, the Warrens, along with the priest and a medium, set up a table in the parlor and sat Carolyn at the head of the table in an oversized captain's chair. Andrea and her younger sister, Cindy, stood at the bottom of the staircase and peeked around the corner to watch the entire thing. The seance began by questioning the presence in the home. Everything appeared ordinary till the medium suggested a door be opened to another realm and accepted anything and anyone to enter. They were determined to figure out who had been causing Carolyn such grief. All of a sudden, Carolyn's head dropped to her chest. There was a moment of silence before she shot her head back and began looking around the room. Her eyes opened as wide as they could and she appeared to be unfamiliar with her surroundings. At that point she began speaking in a language altogether unworldly. She also began growling and howling as the table levitated off the ground and back down. All of a sudden her chair lifted roughly 18 inches off the ground before leaning back and throwing her roughly 20 feet into the foyer in the opposite direction. Andrea and Cindy immediately began sobbing, but attempted to muffle their cries as they watched their mother's head hit the ground and her body become completely lifeless. Roger stood up and attempted to run to her side when Ed grabbed him and attempted to hold him back. Roger reached back as far as he could and punched Ed, knocking him to the ground as he raced to Carolyn's lifeless body. Lorraine immediately raced after Roger and kneeled next to Carolyn as they checked her for signs of life. To their surprise, she still had a heartbeat. They tried to make her comfortable as much as possible. Roger then told Ed and Lorraine, along with the priest and medium, to leave their house and that they were never welcome to return. He stayed with her for the rest of the night as she slowly recovered. She was checked out the next day and it appeared she suffered a concussion, but was going to be okay. The activity in the house remained pretty dormant for the rest of that year. The family at this time 
accepted they were not alone in the house. They did their best to avoid the cellar as much as possible. However, when it was required, Roger would go downstairs and could feel a cold, stinking presence beside him. The family spent the remaining years in the house due to financial instability, constantly on edge. They eventually moved out of the house in 1980 because Carolyn felt she could not survive another winter. The Perrin family started over on a farm in Georgia. However, they could not escape the pain and torment they experienced during their time in the old Arnold estate. Roger experienced bouts of anger and rage, as he felt his family was not being true and faithful to him. He always felt as though they were holding something back or keeping secrets. His five little girls were keeping things from him, and his wife had emotionally cut him off, causing the couple to eventually separate. Regardless of what they experienced in the old Arnold estate, it was a true test of their ability to succeed as a family. Much like every hardship, it is the way we approach it that truly determines the outcome. For the Perrin family, they have never been the same since, and also felt that their time spent in the house was a blessing and an insight into what the world has to offer in the afterlife. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. Let's get into it. This is a, a classic. Yeah, this is uh yeah, this is I've been holding off on doing a story like this. Um you know, this is actually one I considered looking into around like Halloween and more yeah. of like the Ed and Lorraine Warren cases and things like that. Um that I felt I I felt it was a good time to kinda of start to start to dive into it a little bit. Yeah, I think I think we're at the point now where we're we're considering more of like the the big hitters yeah right yeah yeah and that's and that's the way that this story is and the way that like the movie perceives this story is altogether completely different yeah. than the story yeah. actually is it's super dramatized of course extremely yeah and um and as we'll as we'll dive into i mean there's a lot of the there's a lot of like the movie end of it that of course being made for a movie you know like they have to change specific things or do specific things differently right yeah there's also a lot of like creepy like sexually creepy stuff in the actual story that probably wouldn't sell well in a film oh yeah without a doubt you know yep like off-putting points for an audience right like just to mention the random guy that they felt was like an evil presence or even male presence they would watch the girls as they bathed and used the bathroom dressed and and, yeah yeah and they would they literally started going through the house and sets of three or more yeah if not all together and you know at once because they knew and they felt this presence yeah i could see that being pretty off-putting for an audience yeah right yeah 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 that's that's super gross i 
Yeah. Um, wasn't there weirdness between like the female spirit in the house and Roger as well? Wasn't she like sort of like sexually suggestive with him? So, or like, well, this is what I didn't dive into with the story. Um, yeah. I briefly, I briefly mentioned that um, this this woman woman figure, this woman presence in the house was very welcoming to the children like almost as a motherly figure and very welcoming to the husband she wanted the role of the wife which is what she wanted to replace carolyn exactly um now and this and again this is what i was mentioning we'll start to kind of dive into a little bit there's a lot of speculation as to what this woman uh womanly presence was in the house so uh just to jump right into it so when ed and lorraine warren originally uh you know originally came into the house came into the picture lorraine warren had done some investigation some studying on another person nearby in this area in harrisville called bathsheba sherman yeah uh, which Bathsheba, for those that don't, that don't know, was uh, this is back. She was born in 1812. Uh, so I actually have a I have a whole history on her here. Um, so just to, I'm just making sure I have it pulled up just to get my timelines and everything correctly. Uh, so she was born in 1812 to a Thayer and Hannah Taft, uh, which in this area Thayer and Taft were very well known families. Okay. Um, extremely well-known families in the area. So she eventually moved to Connecticut and married a man by the name of Judson Sherman. Uh, this basically, we'll call it this nobody. You know, this this nobody yeah. that, like, the family questioned why she was going off, why she was interested in this this man when their family, both of these families, had such a big. You know, big uh, like following or just you know well-known presence within the community. Yeah. Uh, so she married this man in, in March 10th of 1844. In 1851, she gave birth to a son, Herbert Sherman, uh, which essentially, from what I've read, and I've read some uh, some conflicting things, he was her yeah. only public, publicly well or publicly known offspring. Okay. Um, it was suggested, and also within the area, and I'll I'll get to it a little bit. Uh, but it suggested that she basically gave birth to three other children, two boys and a girl. Um, but supposedly they didn't live long enough to basically make it public. Now in right. Harrisville, in the cemetery where Bathsheba Sherman is uh, is buried, her headstone is no longer uh, available. So it's either okay. right now they don't know. Like obviously, people in the community don't know if it's been stolen or if some you know if like people the community kept or removed her her headstone Headstone, to essentially preserve it right uh because of like this story being so well known and Bathsheba Sherman basically being this villain and the actual conjuring movie yeah um you know so but next to her her gravestone or next to her her site is her Hudson or her husband Judson to the right, and to the left her three children, which are Julia, Edward, Francis, and George. Okay. Uh, the only one to actually outlive her was her son Herbert, and she died. Uh, I think she yeah she died at the age of seventy three. 
Um, but so basically what happened. So now, now that I've given you a little bit of backstory. Um, so she, so basically in this area, um, she, there was a, there was a newborn or an infant that was, that apparently died within her care. And after further examination, it was found that it had almost like a needle point at the base of its skull from like a sewing needle. Right. So this town immediately assumed that she had killed this child, right? Yeah. Uh, Because they thought that she was performing witchcraft. She was actually a descendant of... um, I can't remember exactly who it is now, and I wish I, I wish I, I wish I would have noted it down. But someone that was uh, that was burned during the Salem witch trials for being okay. a witch, uh, she was actually a descendant of that. So the town immediately assumed that she was a witch, and she was basically, um, you know, serving up this baby as a means of like some satanic ritual. Gotcha. And so basically, you know, so the town like shuns her off and whatever else. Eventually she was, she was acquitted of this whole thing, but there's no actual court record of them actually going to trial or anything. So buddy, right. nobody Isn't really there... knows that this is real. If this is actually what happened. Right. Yeah. Isn't there some like town book that has record of some of this stuff? Like it's like a history book in the town. Like, I don't know. It's like almost like a ledger of happenings. I mean, there should be there should be some form of like record keeping and things like that that have all of these, but there's yeah. none that actually show her going to trial or anything. I mean, I vaguely remember the like the town itself. Like, aside from official records, okay, the town itself having like a like a, a big ledger book where they basically kept like it was almost like um. Things that would have gone in like the newspaper. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean outside I of like the facts that I found, and I try to dive as deep into her history as I could without it just being speculation. Um, I I didn't find any like specific records of those things. I mean, yeah, I think there's been enough just speculation about right. this woman. I know, I know at least with the children, like the suggested three additional children. There are specific graves, grave sites for them. Okay. So we know that they are real. I mean, on the actual tombstone, it says, child of, uh, you know, Bathsheba Sherman and, uh, you know, Judson, whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, needless to say, so they, the town immediately assumed, you know, she was a witch and all this other stuff. And eventually she was acquitted of all this, but the town didn't like that still. They didn't believe it. Um, yeah. Needless to say, I mean, this this lady, she lived a long life. She died at the age of uh, 73. She eventually had a stroke and developed paralysis. Um, and, and I mean, ultimately, the town chose to bury her in a Christian cemetery. Uh, right, yeah. I mean, this, like, is, this is the town cemetery, exactly. Like, yeah. That's, it, that's one of the main things that make me think, like, a lot of this is probably made up. That's exactly. That's witch, what I feel, too. Know? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because again, there's no specific public record of it. It's just like these are stories that have been passed down. Right, it's a legend. Exactly. So, which think about this going forward because this sets the tone for some of the things we're going to discuss. All right, but eventually there was also there was there was another thing I ran into that some people believe that she turned to stone. Okay. 
because she was a witch. Paralysis. <laughs> right, exactly. She turned to stone. And that's what yeah. killed her. But, you know, it is what it is, right? That's so, Yeah, that's funny. That's, that's where, like such an obvious exaggeration of what actually happened. Right, exactly. For sure. Yeah. So that's when we talk about this woman, this this evil presence or this, you know, this thing within the the household, right? That is causing um, you know, a lot of this behavior and attacking Carolyn. Um, yeah. you know, like trying to help the family and wanting to be the mother of the house along with Roger and things like that, right? That's where this like kind of like sexual thing comes in. So yeah. Now, according to Andrea Perrin, she's actually written a, a trilogy um, uh, called House of Darkness, House of Light, yeah. um, which discuss, which goes over their, um, you know, their actual like occurrences and experiences within the house as they were there over this period of 10 years. She moved in right after she had turned 12 years old because they, yeah. they originally they found the house before Christmas they decided they weren't going to move until after Christmas and they ended up being the first week of January. So she had turned 12 at that point. She moved out when she was, I believe, 21. Wow. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, you know, roughly 10 year period that they lived in this house. Um, That's such a long time to deal with this type it is, of stuff. It is. And th- just like we talked about, like, uh, like Black Forest and we talked about yeah. um, the Estefania haunting and yeah. the demonic possession of estefania um like it it all comes down to that like not really having the money to be able to move right and that's that's what this case was too you know they just didn't have the means to be able to do so and it finally came down to almost 10 years later and carolyn perrin's like i can't take another winter i'm not going to survive another winter we have to do something and until they finally you know get the muster up the whatever to be able to move um and so yeah i mean they dealt with this for so long yeah that's it's wild especially when you think about like all the and i mean we've talked about it before also when you think about the time but you have to consider the time between these events right like it's not like every day for 10 years when you walk in the kitchen dishes are being thrown around right right exactly I i mean you know there was a lot of things that became a nightly nightly thing clock stopping yeah. at 307 eventually became literally every single night yeah three years crazy. in the smell of rotting flesh became yeah. a nightly occurrence the children being pulled from their beds eventually became a nightly occur- well, morning occurrence that happened Dude, every day scary. around 515 that's the scariest thing in the whole damn story for me oh I, yeah the, like i agree just being agree ripped sure. out of bed that like it, I, of course, I think of the scene in um, Paranormal Activity. Yeah, <laughs> where you know, right? Yeah, like that's so damn scary. It really is, and to think of like because I imagine that scene, and I imagine where she's like pulled into the hallway. Yeah, you know, like so. Imagine something like that. I mean, you have this, and and if you watch like The Conjuring, uh, the the daughter. Um, you know, like one of the first cases that it happens, she's like, she's sleeping, you know, and she's like tugged and you see her body kind of jerk. Yeah. And she kind of like wakes up and goes back to sleep. She's jerked again and then kind of wakes up and then, you know, like basically like pulled completely off the bed. Like that. Yeah, that would be, that would be absolutely terrifying. For sure. For sure. See, I, I've never seen the movie. 
which so, really surprises me to be honest like yeah I, to, i've never watched any of them to be fair like i you know a lot of modern horror films really don't like i i don't enjoy i enjoy like the ones that are that weird kind of like psychological horror like i really yeah. dug like midsummer and hereditary i recently watched x which is fantastic completely yeah. fantastic and it's like that more psychological meets like old school slasher right nice. so like i really dig i dig that but that's like you know because what else do they have to do because you can't you, you know you can't scare anything anymore it's all yeah. it's all psychological based but con- like the whole conjuring universe like the way that they started these movies, you know, focused around Ed and the Rain Warren's cases, mm-hmm. and that's what the entire the entire series is based on is their different cases. Like, you yeah. know, getting into talking about like the original Annabelle or the who was it Annalise or whoever it was that like uh, influenced like that whole story, and then like just all of that stuff that they originally developed like this whole universe based on, and yeah. it's one of the best. I would say like. I'm trying to think I'm trying to think of the best word it's not universes but like one of the best like film series like when it comes to horror and at least the last 20 to 30 years in my opinion and I'm a huge horror yeah, buff I'm, you know like I always hear I always hear great things about it I just never you know I don't pull the trigger on a horror movie very often so okay, that's fair I have a lot of classics that I love and go back to. But of course, I same, same. I don't it's... try the new ones very often. See, and I'm the, I'm the same. I mean, I well, I I do. You know, I, I'm always looking yeah. for the next like good horror movie that's. I'm gonna be like, all right, this is good, and I'm always so let down. But these yeah. movies, I was always pleasantly surprised. They were always great, you know, and like, which is why like I was actually pumped to be able to kind of deep dive into this story. Um, yeah, I know. Like, I say. I don't do new ones, but like I'm pretty sure the first Conjuring came out like ten or so years ago. Didn't right? It? Yeah, it, it's been out for yeah. a while. Like, and it's, it's been on exactly like almost anymore. all the streaming platforms and everything that you yeah. know. Um, I think HBO Max even has like the whole like Conjuring universe available if you want to like deep dive into every single one. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you want to go out and watch them, apparently we're <laughs> we're promoting that now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's 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 honestly it's well worth it because it is a truly, I mean, it's a terrifying story when it comes down to it, because it's not just your average like, you know, just haunted house story. It's that, but intensified, but also not overly done to where it's cheesy. Right. It's done properly to where it feels real and authentic. Like this could be a house that you could you could live in. Yeah, and you could experience all this stuff that's going on within you know, within the story. Okay, so do we agree that it pro- the female presence in the house probably wasn't Bathsheba Sherman? Well, this is where I can dive into my next story, my next bit of content. If you'd like me to, or I can hold off. Yeah, no, I mean, all right, I agree. Yes, one hundred percent. I don't think it's Bathsheba. Okay. I didn't believe it was Bathsheba from the beginning. Her backstory yeah. is it's too like. So, it also goes that she she's never lived on the property. Some some different like some I guess some facts that you can find say like she lived on the property. She was never she never lived on the property. She actually yeah. lived on a neighboring farm. Yeah, and this all happened you know back eighteen hundreds, and this house was built like sixteen eighty. I think was when it originally was the foundation was built, right? 
Um, but like it never happened that she ever lived in this house. Like there was, there's no reason, first of all, for her to be there. Yeah. And just the whole, her whole like story behind her stuff. I think she was falsely accused to be honest. If Um, it ever happened at all. If it ever happened at all. She was ever confused. Right. Yep. I agree. I agree. So now the other theory is that it's actually... Mrs. Arnold, Mrs. John, John Arnold was the original owner, him and his wife, which I've not yeah. been able to find her name. So we'll call yeah. her Mrs. Arnold, Mrs. John Arnold, whatever you want to call her. So yeah. a lot of people believe, along with the Perrin family, they also believed that it wasn't Bathsheba. So again, just to go back to Ed and Lorraine Warren, Lorraine had been studying Bathsheba. So she immediately assumed yeah. due to those piercing, you know, these like piercing yeah. wounds found on on Carolyn's leg. Oh, Bathsheba had apparently stuck a you know, sewing, ne- needle. sewing needle in this like infant's skull. So that was yeah. the only only tie-in with that that caused her to think that this is the thing. That's why in the movie, Bathsheba such like this big presence and this big like villain that it became. Uh which yeah. I mean still it's it's an awesome way to go. Like it was a cool like she has a stellar like, you know, whole storyline and everything goes with it. But in the true but that's story, the way the that's the way the Warrens wrote it up. So that's exactly how the movie was written, right? Yeah. yeah. But in the, so when it comes down to it, even the Perrin family didn't believe that Bathsheba had anything to do with it. They believed that it was Miss, Mrs. Arnold. So after it was after the Richardsons. So the Richardsons was the reason originally who it was deeded to. Um, you know, and then uh, then it was sold to John Arnold, and that's why it's now called the Arnold Estate. To this day, it's known as the Arnold Estate. Yeah. So they believe it was actually Mrs. Arnold, whom, when she was, I believe it was 93 or 97, uh, I, whatever, I'll, yeah, so we'll just call it 93 or 97, uh, just because I'm, I'm, I don't want to yeah. spend the time looking at my facts. She actually went out and hung herself on one of the trees on the property, um, or right outside of the property or whatever. Now, See, I thought she hung herself in the barn. Was okay. that not true? That's not true. So she okay. actually hung herself. It's either right on the property or right outside of the property. Now, her body was found. And this is where you'll you'll see a couple different conflicting reports. As one of the, like, farmhands or somebody that, like, helped out on the property, like, he found her body. And at that time, like, suicide was completely frowned upon. Like, you know, it was, I mean, yeah. obviously it's still frowned upon. But, like, you know, at this point it was extremely taboo. Like, it wasn't a normal thing. So he took her body and moved it into the barn. Yeah. Gotcha. And so that's where the whole that that aspect of it comes from. Okay. Right. So, but so the children had seen this broken neck lady. Okay. Bathsheba never had any neck injury injuries anything like that. I mean, other than she eventually, you know, had a stroke and developed paralysis. Sure. Uh, so turned to stone. But or turned to stone. (laughs) Right, but Mrs. Arnold had actually hung herself, you know, obviously snapping her neck, which would cause, you know, and and which is actually really cool. Down in the basement, they found an old, like, piece of furniture that on the side of it has this drawing of this broken neck lady done by, by a child, which is really neat. So they assumed it to be Mrs. Arnold. Which would explain because the reason she hung herself is because her husband had passed away 
and she was so lonely. I mean, she was an old ass woman. Right. You got to give her that. Like, you know, which, yeah. But, you know, she was very, very lonely. Her husband had passed. Like, she had nothing at that point and went out and hung herself. And that's what, you know, they saw this, continued to see this broken neck lady it was this a constant occurrence. And that's yeah. what the, even the, even the girl said, like, they developed this relationship with this broken neck lady, you know, and that was that's, what it was often referred yeah. to as. And, that's terrifying right it, it really is and this is where like if you've ever seen like the haunting of hill house uh, yes Netflix, i was just thinking right. about that and that's and i think maybe that's where they get that inspiration i don't know yeah you know, who knows probably but, yeah um that was like my my immediate like tie-in thinking about it but yeah. um yeah so that was like a that was a big thing you know and so that's where like because she was so brokenhearted she wanted her husband which is why she had want roger she loved children, which is why she was so welcoming to children. She was the head of the household when it came, you know, she's the woman of the house. Yeah. Which is why she wanted nothing to do with Carolyn and wanted to push her out. Right. And so to this day, they still believe that it was Mrs. Arnold. It was the one that was actually the evil presence. So question about Carolyn. Do you think she was, she actually, it actually went as far as her being possessed? I don't believe she became possessed. Um, okay. So I, I don't believe she became possessed. I think she was influenced. Um, you know, because she started to wear like this old kind of old fashioned clothing and things like that. Yeah. I don't think this was like, you know, this is some someone completely possessing her. I think it was influential and influencing her like her daily routine. Yeah. But and I think I think the problem with it was because because she became so intertwined so into discovering the history of this area yeah that really got to her that and on top of you know obviously mrs arnold messing with her nightly or daily you know like yeah, yeah. that's gonna it's gonna take a toll on you like you know you're gonna be a little pissed but you're also gonna be like very set on finding out the answers right so like sure. i can see why she wasn't herself yeah now till it came obviously to the seance yeah, this I love the seance, the descriptions of the seance because it's so like classic spiritualist stuff with the floating table and exactly. the being thrown right. across yeah. the room, and the she throws her head back and like I even picture her eyes going like cloudy. Yeah, and you know, she like, like she's like looking wide eyed. She's looking all around at people, and like yeah. they they described it as like she looked she looked as though she was completely unfamiliar with where she was. Right. Yeah. Um, so at that point, I think they opened a door. Yeah. I don't think any, I don't think she was possessed. I think she may have been on the brink of it. Maybe, you know, like given some more circumstances and some things like, you know, opening, like opening up, but I don't Mm -hmm. think she was there yet. I think though the seance, I think she was temporarily. Yeah. Maybe it just like allowed her to be a conduit for whatever it was to come through right yeah exactly yeah Yeah, now in the movie they actually do a um they do basically like an exorcism down in the basement yeah um and in real life they just did a seance in like the parlor room now in real life at this estate they do seances down in the basement they actually have a whole room for it which is pretty cool um but i'm skipping ahead so in the movie does in the movie does Roger punch Ed Warren and throw them out of the house? 
You know, I don't remember that. I, I was actually thinking, like, maybe I should watch the movie before we do this. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just because it's been a while. I've seen it a bunch of times. But I, as far as I remember, I don't think so. And if I'm wrong, I apologize. It has been a little while since I've seen it. But yeah. as far as I remember, I don't... Hmm. I just appreciated that move. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was that was like a big thing, and like, yeah, he apparently like he punched him so hard he like started bleeding and like fell to the floor yeah. and everything. Like, you know, it was like that whole thing. Like, and it was also said later on, and again, I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit just for the sake of like just impact when it comes to this. Sure. Um, Lorraine was actually talking to Andrea, so just to give you a little bit of context right so they in 73 when in the midst of all this stuff happening when the warrens were there they tried to get the the parents to let their story be story be told they said no obviously roger said you know i'm done with you i never want to see you again whatever yeah uh so in the 80s as ed was like slowly dying he basically told the rain like please like you know, this is the mo- This is one of the the biggest cases we've ever done. Please, let's try get their story, tell their story, like make you know, like promise yeah. me this is what you're gonna do. You know, honor me, basically this whole thing, whatever, and tell their story, yeah. honor the family. Um, not just on him, but it was like you know their biggest case, the biggest thing they did. So yeah. she, uh, so the family had moved out in the '80s. They eventually moved to Georgia into this farmhouse, and um, Lorraine found them. And this is, like, before, like, you know, you could just Google somebody and find their address, right? Uh, right. So she found them, and the, which is, I was watching this interview with Andrea Perrin, uh, the oldest daughter. And she's like, yeah, they found this, which, you know, she found this, which was kind of weird. You know, we were really off-put by it, but we were just like, okay. Um, yeah. But she said, quote, we are willing to offer you, you know a uh, large amount of money and uh, the quote I guess the quote was more so like life changing amount of money is what it was Yeah. Um, so of course Carolyn considered it you know, she considered yeah, of it course. so Lorraine said alright I'm gonna give you the night you know sleep on it think about it I'll call you tomorrow you know we'll talk more about it and you know, see if you've kind of come to a decision so it yeah. ended at that so that night Carolyn down in the basement of their new home in Georgia, their new farm, you know, it's down in the basement. She's doing some laundry. All of a sudden, the door of the basement becomes unhinged and falls on her, dislocating her shoulder. Wow. And she, when Lorraine Warren called the next day, she told her, no, I never want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to ever talk to you. I don't want her to see you. I don't want anything. Because she yeah. immediately assumed that since she's been talking to Lorraine now, it's coming Whatever back. Has, is ex- is, right, is exact, exactly like coming back. It's attached, you know? Yeah. So I'm giving this context just so, you know, just so we kind of know where we're at, right? So, you know, this whole thing with like him, you know, knocking him out in this story, whatever else, right? Became like this, this big thing. And eventually later on, when Lorraine was talking to Andrea, and this is like, I think this might have been either before the movie was made or after the movie came out, uh, before Lorraine had died. And she apologized to her. Lorraine apologized to Andrea, saying, you know, we completely apologize. I, on behalf of my husband, we didn't know what we were getting into, and we didn't know what we were putting your family through. 
Yeah. You know, like this shouldn't have been something that we did. We had, we had no idea like what we were stepping into. Like, and so that to me, I think was extremely important. Yeah. I mean, if I'm honest, I always struggle with the Warrens. Cause like, I'm, I think that I'm they're... right there with you. I know. I love like, yeah. I love, you know, the Hollywood aspect of what they're doing. But yeah. like when it comes down to the real cases, I mean, they did Amityville. Mm-hmm. They did, you know, of course, this whole thing that The Conjuring is based on. You know, they did yeah. a lot of like they did a lot of big cases. They did over in uh, over in Europe. They did one in Scotland. They did one in England. Like, right? They yeah. did a lot of really big, famous cases. But I, I like what the what the modern Warren Foundation does. But I feel like. Ed and Lorraine just, they were, I feel like Ed Warren was so obsessed with demons. Right. That he just turned everything into demons. <laughs> As one of our local friends does from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I agree. Just I agree. Would characterize every haunting as like demons taking over a home. Yeah. I don't know. And I don't, I'm not even fully sold on the existence of demons personally. See, so. And I think that was Lorraine's approach to apologizing to Andrea. Like, yeah. they took the wrong approach. Ed being a demonologist, which was what sure. he did. Lorraine yeah. being a clairvoyant or a psychic or, uh, you know, like someone that's very sensitive or an empath yeah. or whatever you want to conf- you know, call this, right? You know, they just took the wrong approach to it because that wasn't what they... By the end of the day, when they when everything was all said and done, they don't think that's what they were actually dealing with. But that's how yeah. they that's how they approached it. Yeah, that's... I could definitely see how that could do some damage. And I feel like that's evident when you look at what happened to the family after they moved to Georgia. I feel like a lot of that stuff was... It was just pure trauma. You know what I mean? I, to be honest, I'd have to agree with you. I think there is, there is the possibility of being, and just as Andrea puts a, a quote that she says in one of her books is like, when you're touched by a spirit or by something otherworldly, it's a gift that's given to you, and it opens up yeah. basically a door, you know, for the rest of your life. It's, you know, yeah. it, it's just, it basically, it's like, you know, you, it's something that you have to take and not be afraid of. And being afraid of it is like the wrong approach to it. You know, right. be, be open to it, be welcome to it, whatever else. And I think like, with that said, I think there is the possibility that these things can attach. They can remain with people for the, in, you know, the entirety of their existence, whatever else. Right. But I think yeah. a lot of it, like you said, comes down to trauma. Yeah, I think you a know? lot of it was trauma. Exactly. And I think like this night that Lorraine called Carolyn, mm-hmm. this thing happens, happens, you know, and what is coincidence is the wrong word, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like it, that seems like a, an explainable coincidence i mean right exactly when you're when you're already on edge you're freaked out you're reminded of all this trauma you and your family went through and then something random happens of course you're gonna associate it with it you know 
If she had gotten in a car accident on the way home that day, she probably would have thought that that was exactly you it know would what have I mean. Some some result or this yielding right. this result, right? Like some form yeah. of something that's associated with what's happened in the past. And I think that is that's all trauma based, right? Yeah. You can insert anything, right? Like she stubs her toe, she gets a paper cut, she the fridge stops working, whatever. She gets pissed she off. She's that's yeah. that's a reason, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. So yeah, I I ha- I definitely have to sway in that direction with you. Like I I think that's one hundred percent what you know, what that is. Like I said, yeah. I mean there are cases, obviously. I mean I think there are instances where things do attach, but those are not like it's not just like a random happenstance that this goes on and yeah well that must be what it is no it's gonna be it's gonna make itself more known than that yeah for sure so yeah i I definitely i definitely do agree but i think like the film itself you know portraying this this thing um which actually is really funny about it is so you know they they basically made this this film based on these occurrences originally apparently had a lot more to it um james wu uh or james wan sorry the uh director he wanted to get it at a pg-13 rating so they kept cutting kept cutting whatever else and finally like the mpaa was like you know they asked like what can we do to get this below in our rating they said absolutely nothing yeah. The film is too literally too scary. Yeah, to get it below an R rating. So like it makes yeah. me like wonder what was actually cut out and I know like according to like Andrea Perrin's books and all this other stuff like you know really tell a different side of the story. I um, mean she yeah. also claims to have a lot of things that she won't talk about. That like I you know I wish I wish that yep. I knew obviously I mean you have to respect like you know you have to respect yeah. that side of it, right? But like, I think a lot of people make. I think wonder. a lot of people speculate. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people speculate that it has to do with the the creepy figure that that you know we talked about I, in the beginning. Yeah, I would. I would have to. I would have to wonder because that would yeah. make the most sense. And that's one that, like of maybe the... something darker and more traumatizing exactly. happened. That yeah, yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. I yeah, I can. I mean, a lot of survivors of stuff like that don't you know don't ever talk about it right i mean that's literally like they've experienced you know if you if you look at it i mean honestly if you look at the bigger picture they all experienced and are dealing with ptsd after the fact oh yeah like intense trauma exactly a decade of it exactly and so but like andrea perrin the being person that she is and I, i always refer back to her because like she's so positive about this experience yeah and she like she will constantly quote this is the best decade i ever experienced in my whole life because That's, it opened up my eyes and yeah. made me realize like you know we're we're here for a reason and there's more to this life than just right. you know like as she quotes ash to ashes and dust to dust you know mm-hmm. we're here beyond this point there's something more and i you know like I often don't look Man. at it like that. To be that honest, that girl, that woman has a like a a pro level oh silver dude. lining detector. Yeah, <laughs> like she she is golden and like someone that is 
so sincere, but like so passionate about what she's talking about, what she's doing. And then also yeah. like talking about these traumatic experiences and also looking at the silver lining of it all. Yeah. It's just that, that to me is crazy. I mean, hats off to her for being able to live like that. Right. Yeah. And I hope it's, I hope it's sincere too. I hope she, that isn't like a, a thing she puts on a face she puts on for the books and yeah i mean public you know to be honest i would like i wouldn't think so just because of like the way she like presents herself well i really hope that's true yeah i hope she found a way to to make it a positive thing because that that is a deeply traumatic thing that they all went through she apparently on top of her trilogy that she wrote about the her experiences she also is writing or has written i haven't i haven't double checked to see if it's out yet but a book on extraterrestrials oh okay which is kind of cool i'm I'm actually kind of curious yeah. what uh you know like her approach and her take on that is um yeah, yeah. If, for the sake of mentioning it you know but yeah yeah that's interesting mm-hmm. i mean that just goes to show that it really did like open a open up a whole new thing for her right you know and she also said that like even carolyn uh, the mother has talked about, like, even though she experienced all this stuff that she did, she's happy that she did because she's no longer afraid of death. You know, it, it like, she's more positive when it comes to, like, her outlook on life and the afterlife and what's next and everything. Um, she fully plans on haunting Roger. <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what she's most pumped for. Probably. Yep, exactly. Wait till I start slapping women around in seances. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um just to just kind of touch now. So this conjuring this this house, sorry, this house that the conjuring movies, this conjuring franchise is yeah. uh made, you know, made from or influenced by uh the old Arnold estate. Uh now is owned by a couple of paranormal investigators. Uh um, Whoa, really? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> So, which actually, the house is massive, man. Like, I'll send you a link to where you can take, yeah. uh, you can take like a 3D a tour of it, full nice. like 360 tour of the entire house, like from ground ground floor to the very top and and everything. It's really cool. Uh, we'll nice. have to make sure that we post it. But um, does that uh, include the cellar? Yeah, yes, it does. Nice. Mm-hmm. nice. And also the uh, the closet that's uh, Oliver Richardson. Um, who was it? I believe it was April, right? Yeah, the youngest yeah. daughter became friends with the little boy in the closet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about him. So, did yeah. the parents just kind of write him off as being an imaginary friend? Because that so, happened pretty early on, right? That So, that did, right. And at first, it was. It was chalked off as that. Until the other sisters became aware of, aware of his presence, right? Um, and this is, and this is something I, I feel like it definitely deserves to kind of be talked about. Um, sure. you know, which I, I've been watching like a, a lot of these, like just, you know, documentaries or, um, just, uh, you know, just random like interviews and things like that of people talking about like experiencing, experiencing hauntings at a young age yeah. and like dealing with children specifically that experience things at a young age, especially being parents that are not, uh, as open and, receptive to it right yeah and the importance basically of questioning your children and being open to it so taking them seriously right so when it comes to this story they weren't as open right away you know i mean it was more so like it was just you know it yeah an imaginary friend you know whatever else right 
Um, then, of course, the girls started to see see this boy. I mean, they saw all these apparitions within the house. Um, both parents eventually started to experience it. Even the father, as much as he held back 100%, tried not to you know, buy into it or anything, yeah. eventually experienced seeing full-bodied apparitions and things like that. Yeah, because Roger was, at first, he was like the archetype for the classic horror movie dad. Exactly. Right? Just like we like, talked about previously. Oh, yeah. Ghosts aren't real. Don't worry about it. Meanwhile, his daughters are getting chucked out of bed and throwing right. dishes across the room and sweeping for her. And he's uh, like, no, that's it's something. It's, it's probably the wind. Yeah. Maybe. It's probably the wind. You probably didn't, forgot about it, probably. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, he was that classic, that classic horror movie dad that didn't buy into anything. Yeah. Just big, like. But eventually, big it guy, gets right? him, too. Yeah. But eventually, yeah. Right. It. It does get him, and he event you know he eventually does agree. There's something strange going on, and right. even when they did once this- he starts like sleeping with the ghost. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know about going that far, but you know, like during the seance that the Warrens did with Carol uh, Carolyn, like he kept saying this yeah. is such a bad idea, blah blah. We don't know what we're getting into. We're gonna open this or that. Like he was he was sold at that point, and he didn't want like bad stuff to happen upon his family. Right, right. Of but it took getting almost that far before he actually finally started to mind what was going on. Yeah, which is just ridiculous. So, getting back to this discussion of you know whether or not they they bought into you know her talking yeah. about this little boy. And this is something that I think like as I've I've watched like I said a couple interviews that kind of really talk and buy like dive into this subject. And how important it is, like, if you ever have a child that is saying, like, hey, I talked to such and such, or who this is, or whatever else, like, or, like, you know, you'll have kids saying, like, they talked to this old woman, or they saw this old woman, or they spent the afternoon, or whatever it is. You know, a lot of it comes down to, like, old relatives that do visit, especially young children. Like, you know, and this is something that's very, very popular. And so what's suggested, and I'm going to go ahead and throw this out too, because I think it's such a fantastic idea, is don't approach it in the sense like, yeah, like, you know, you're, you're dismissing it because they're talking to like some imaginary friend or whatever else. Ask them more about it. Ask them, yeah. what did you talk about? You know, did you hear any songs? They tell you any stories. Look for pictures. Look for pictures of old res- like relatives. Yeah. You know, get a collection of them and say, have you ever seen this person or that person? See if they recognize anyone specific. Yeah. Because in a lot of cases, and maybe some long lost relative or like some grandparent that passed away years ago that is trying, you know, it's able to like make their presence ever so often to, you know, come into these, these areas of situations and things like that. And this is like, I want to like, I think one of the coolest takeaways from this is just like this, this different approach to it. Right. Yeah, you know, and uh, there was even I was watching one where he had saw, he had like seen something as a kid, and like told his mom like mom like I saw this. She's like, oh yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah, nothing else. Not she didn't she didn't dismiss it. She didn't say anything else. Like yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah, it's just part of being a person. Exactly, which I think is is yeah. awesome, and yeah, I, I do really dig being able to look at things like that because like. You want it. You want your children and people that you surround yourselves to like sound, surround yourself with to be open to a higher 
you know, higher form of thinking, more of an intensified yeah. form of thinking and like exploring and looking at things, right? At least I yeah. do, you know. Also, as a parent, a big part of your job is to make your children feel safe and to make them feel heard and to make them feel like they can come to you and talk to you about things. And when they do and it's met with like ridicule or you dismissing whatever they're saying, you, I mean, you kind of, that lays the groundwork for kind of breaking that bond. Exactly. And that's what a lot of, a lot of people within this kind of paranormal community believe that, be you know especially with children being so sensitive at first yeah. as they're made to think otherwise or dismissed they slowly start to lose that sensitivity yeah and sure. eventually do lose it and then they don't experience things they're not as sensitive right. they're not you know and then then it's more so like yeah it's not real whatever else like yeah you know and that's, the world just kind of beats it out of you exactly so yeah yeah i think that's that's definitely important so, so, yeah, go ahead. I mean, do you consider this a legit haunting? To be honest, I definitely do. Okay. Um, and, you know, obviously, I mean, I I buy into the original story, um, you know, for more, more than what it is, uh, you know, when it comes to, like, yeah. modern media and how Hollywood depicts it. But because of also what's consi- what's continued after the fact. You know, with this couple yeah. that own the house now, I mean, they also allow, of course, like, paranormal groups to come in. People often claim to see, like, this woman in a white dress all the time. They hear, like, uh-huh. disembodied voices and uh, apparently see uh, see or hear a small child um, in the upstairs in one of the closets, uh, okay. which I've often heard referred to as Manny as well. Interesting. Which is a little bit different. Um also, also, I just want to throw this out now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, we had talked about Oliver Richardson, which is that that the young child yeah. that April was friends with. Um, had had talked apparently talked about himself as his name was Oliver Richardson. You know, he's no longer a part of this world, whatever. Um, yeah. but in the local cemetery, there is a gravestone for a person named named Olive Richardson. Okay. So I, you know, like that's, that's also been kind of tossed around a little bit, you know, like maybe it but wasn't really Oliver. Maybe it was actually Olive because like, it's been, I don't know, probably a year or so since I read into this story. Um, wasn't, aren't like the, this, um, this gravestone, the like born and death dates are show that it, it was like a, a pretty older person it wasn't like a child that had died right yeah to be honest i don't remember that one i thought olive was younger um i may be conflating two different maybe instances and i I could i could also be wrong um yeah yeah i don't i don't remember specifically that that actual gravestone but yeah i just know uh especially since the conjuring came out a lot of like fairly weak threads have been pulled together to like corroborate all these you know what i mean of and course yeah that yeah that seems that i don't know that seems pointless to me like i feel like just listen to andrea perrin talk for a half an hour oh yeah like that's all you need she is so just so like almost inspirational it's crazy uh yeah and like 
She, it's impossible. It's so hard to not believe her. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. I fully buy this as a haunting. Yeah. yeah. Which is rare for me. I mean, I, I, I get it. There's a lot. There's a lot to buy into. Yeah. But with how different this story is versus what we've now come to know, quote unquote, the conjuring. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's such, it's such a different story. And the whole like the whole thing behind uh, Bathsheba Sherman versus you know Mrs. Arnold and that whole thing, like that approach and yeah. everything, like yeah, it it just adds a bit more authenticity in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the movie, of course, that's bullshit. But yeah. I think when I read the real story and I listen to Andrea talk, and like there were a lot of people who experienced stuff in this house while they were living there. I mean, they were there for 10 years and they frequently had guests who had experiences. They had, you know, it was a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's been a lot of people now that go into the house and yeah. have some extreme experiences. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't know. I buy it. I I think I think the house is definitely haunted. I'll have to I'll have to agree. Um you know, and I think I think haunting is is a very extreme word in this case, just because of the way that they look at like their experience within the house. Yeah, um, maybe it was a, you know, it was like an enlightening experience. Sure. Versus just a you know traditional haunted house. Yeah, I'll take that. But yeah, I'm right there with you. I have to agree for sure. And like I said, I think there's just so much, so much that kind of comes to play and, you know, comes like there's such a big argument that can be made in this case versus like some of the things we talk about that like, you know, we can say, yeah, you know, we believe it or we don't, but there's just so much that also, you know, kind of comes off the tail into this. Yeah. I mean, I, I like this story. Agreed. Agreed. I think it's, I mean, uh, I like, I like it for being legitimate. For sure. I think it's definitely a unique one for sure. And. Um, now, you know, anybody that didn't know the true story or, you know, quote unquote true story of the, what the movie or the film franchise is based off of, hopefully yeah. now you have a little bit more, a little bit more knowledge of what actually happened and can also still appreciate the franchise for what it is. Cause it is fantastic. I do agree. Yeah. Sure. Excellent. I mean, I can't really say one way or the other, but I, I believe you. <laughs> you'll have to, <laughs> you'll have to check it out sometime. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that uh, wraps up what episode forty-six, the Perrin family haunting, or the real Conjuring story. Thank you, thank you, thank you, from the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week. And it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. And if you want more, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. It's there you will find bonus content behind the scenes. We're just keeping up on our day to day and maybe some swag along the way. It is our way to show thanks for your support and do everything we can to provide you with as much content as possible. Again, that's patreon.com 
forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. With that said, we want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And lastly, we do have our merch store. You can find the link available on all of our social media or via our link tree. Show your support. Buy a shirt, buy a sticker, buy a blanket, buy a pillow, anything that you want to rep Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram, the brilliant mind behind the gorgeous music that you hear each week behind the debrief. So go find him at reverentmusic.bandcamp.com or you can visit his Spotify page by searching Reverent. R-E-V-E-R-E-N-T All of these links can be found in the episode description. Go and support him. You both deserve it. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and and trust trust in the unknown. unknown.